This is CSAP Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present the 15th episode in our series on science, policy, and pandemics. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases, Tigris, and the Cambridge Immunology Network. In this episode, our host, Dr. Rob Doubleday, is joined by experts to explore the impact of COVID-19 in India. We believe that a lot of work that the development sector has done because of COVID-19, it's going to actually take a setback. India has one of the biggest immunization programs uh, in the world. Uh, But due to COVID-19, many children are not going to receive their vaccinations. The reason is that uh, the centers are shut. There's no way to get to the centers. The people who monitor the vaccinations are simply not available because their resources are now spent on COVID monitoring relief work. Uh, The second example is of nutrition. Uh, Malnourishment is a huge issue for this country. There is something called the midday meal program where uh, children who go to government schools receive nutritious lunch. And because the schools are shut for the past four months, those meals have gone missing. A lot of the work that we've done towards ensuring better nutrition, better nutritious value and growth uh, would be jeopardized. And we'll have to go back and walk those steps again. The third example I want to give is the impact uh, of COVID-19 on young girls and women. We've spent a lot of resources uh, in India over the last decade addressing issues like child marriage. And we fear that, you know, with schools being shut, girls are now going to go back into that child marriage, teenage pregnancy cycle, which is going to be this intergenerational cycle which we've been trying to break. Um, So I think that's a huge setback and it just puts all the work we've done together as a country at risk. Hi. I'm Rob Doubleday, and this is CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. Today, we're talking about COVID-19 in India. You've just heard from Dr. Sukriti Chauhan, a global health advocate based in South Delhi. Throughout today's episode, we'll be hearing from several experts as we explore the economic, food security and health impacts of COVID-19 in India. In the first segment of today's episode, we're joined by Sanal Desai, a professor and director of India's National Innovation Centre and professor of sociology at the University of Maryland. And also Jishnu Das, who's professor at Georgetown University and also visiting senior visiting fellow at New Delhi's Centre for Policy Research. Welcome both. So now, would you mind starting by giving us an overview of the lockdown in India? On March 24, uh, India's Prime Minister uh, announced a nationwide lockdown. The lockdown occurred at just a few hours of notice, so nobody was quite prepared for it, but it was one of the strongest lockdowns around the world. It went into effect nationwide. People could not, uh, no interstate transportation was available. Everything was pretty much shut down. And and in some ways, it was a good idea. It began at a time when uh, India had relatively few cases of coronavirus. Uh, It could have been used to uh, prevent the spread of coronavirus. The problem, I think, was that once it happened, people had not really thought through the economic impact of this particular event. So one of the things that happened was people had not really thought about the residents of rural areas who had migrated to cities like uh, Mumbai and Delhi uh, in order to find work. Once the lockdown went into effect, all of a sudden they didn't have a job, they didn't have any money, and they were many of them were far away from their families. 
So they decided to set off to get back home and it uh, resulted into um, just a lot of confusion. Policies that were put into place with great ambitions couldn't quite live up to the what was the on-the-ground reality. Can you tell me a bit about the economic impact on individuals? So, you know, one of the things that we found was that of the people... Um, who were employed in March, only about 30% of the informal sector workers actually were able to do any kind of a work uh, during the sharp lockdown of the months of April and May. The cities were deeply affected. India is largely an informal economy. Much of the living is made by people who are working as either domestic servants, uh, informal workers in various factories, small businesses, and um, just daily wage workers. And what happened was that people who had like a regular salaried job were somewhat protected especially in government jobs or public sector jobs, could stay at home, work from home, still get paid. But people who were working for private employers were suddenly hit very hard because these employers couldn't actually manage to survive themselves. You know, they were facing major financial crunches. The small businesses were totally shut down except for food, food and groceries and vegetable vendors. Pretty much everyone was at home who couldn't open their business, couldn't get paid. And the hardest hit people were the informal sector workers or daily wage workers who basically used to gather around at um, in gathering places from which an employer would come with a truck and uh, take them to work on their building site or on some sort of a manual labor where they could neither gather nor their employers could come and pick them up. Lockdown has begun to be relaxed now and people are going back to work, but the work availability is still very low for many of these informal sector workers. And consequently, only about 62% of these workers are able to get any kind of work at all. Many are getting sporadic work. Many are uh, being paid less than they used to. So the economic consequences have been really devastating for India, particularly among the poor of the India. You've done telephone surveys to learn about the lived experiences of people in New Delhi and the surrounding rural areas during the pandemic. What are some of the things you've learned? What we found was that about 85% of our respondents uh, experience income decline. Some of these declines were very sharp. Some of them were somewhat. The income declines were biggest for the daily wage workers. And then there were pretty, second was the people who owned small businesses, petty businesses. These income declines came at the same time as all of a sudden there were sort of, it was difficult to get food and other supplies. And the prices of food items went up. So 30% of our respondents found that their food grains were more expensive or vegetables were more expensive. On one hand, the incomes were going down. On the other hand, the prices were going up. And interestingly, these price increases were also hitting individuals who actually came from low-income settings. Because, um, you know, if you are earning very little, you don't have really enough money to stock up for a month or two. And all of a sudden, these people are squeezed in between. How are small businesses faring on the other side of lockdown? Um, In terms for the small businesses, Uh, One of the challenges has been that it's a little hard for them to get some of the inputs that they can sell. The consumers are sort of not 
able to either get to them physically or they don't have enough money to buy. Okay. So again, the businesses are facing great challenges. So now, is there any other pressing issue you think policymakers really need to be thinking about now? I actually think the schooling is going to become a major issue. Okay. For kids, there are sort of a couple of things that are involved. One is that the kind of online teaching um, that is being instituted in the West is not something that's very easy to do. In. People don't have easy access and bandwidth costs money. So the whole idea of sort of online teaching for kids is not going to be feasible. Also, many of the kids actually get their midday meal in school. Okay? So they'll not be getting that food. Government, again, is trying to put in place some sort of a supply of rations for these kids, but it's not really become very effective yet. So a focus on children, education is going to be something that we'll have to think about as we go along. Ajishnu, how do you think the economics of the pandemic will play out in India over the longer term? You know, if you think about COVID-19, I think there are going to be three distinct phases, and we are right now in phase one which is handling the pandemic as it rises and falls in different geographies and managing potential surges, managing how to test people. The whole phase of how to manage the pandemic, at least until a vaccine is available and a large fraction of the population has access to it. I think there are going to be two distinct phases after that, each of which is not as visible on the radar screen, but partly because uh, they're going to impact high and low income countries differently. So the second phase I think of as the resurgence phase. So already, you know, countries like US and England are dealing a little bit with this. For example, a lot of elective surgeries were postponed and now those patients are coming back in different states or countries. In a country like India, where tuberculosis is one of the leading causes of death estimated uh, in, in the population, uh, we have this big problem that care for all other things fell quite dramatically during this time. So if you think of the fact that we have almost 50,000 births a day, right? I mean, how many babies were born during this time? What's happened to their vaccination? What's happened to TB patients with delayed care? So for me, phase two is what happens when things kind of limp back to normal? In that limping back to normal, we have this whole surge of pent-up demand for healthcare that's going to come back. And in a country like India, where 70% of of the care is in the private sector uh, at the primary level and about 50 to 60% at the tertiary level, uh, we have this whole question of how are you going to get care back into health clinics while practicing physical distancing and training or at least allowing uh, healthcare practitioners and their patients to better understand, you know, the deployment of personal protective equipment, how to practice distancing guidelines, what to care for. So this is, for me, phase two, this resurgence phase, and what are we going to do about that? Phase three, for me, is this kind of long-term phase that I think about as ensuring that a two-year shock to all our systems, our economic systems, our health systems, our education systems, doesn't turn into a permanent deficit, especially for those who are poor. So the biggest part here that I've worked on showing that, look, following a big disaster, even when you give people money, when children return to school, they're doing much worse. And in fact, unless you make dramatic 
changes in the way schools are organized, those deficits build over time, even as the kids are in school. So you have this really frightening possibility that we see another wave of repercussions of the pandemic 10 to 15 years from now, when the kids who are in school today start joining the labor market. And from the Pakistan earthquake, we computed that their earnings could be 15% lower. Now, the kind of GDP declines that we are seeing now, frightening as they are, may be even worse if we don't ensure that children who are in school, children who are being born today, have some way of reaching at least the same or potentially a higher level of human capital than the kids before. So I very much think about the economics of the pandemic playing out in these three phases over the next 10 years. And the big question for me is, how do you ensure that you both have the stamina, the maturity, and the cognitive space to think through each of these pieces and make sure that we have some mitigation plans in place? Are there things we can safely be doing now to reduce the economic harm? India also undertook certain measures to protect the the poorest and the most vulnerable. And one of the things that they did was to make sure that people had certain amount of free rations. Um, And those actually have functioned reasonably well. And anyone who had documentation was able to get these rations and actually stave off starvation at least at some level. The problem was that people who didn't have full documentation and government of India is in the process of making sure that there is a portability of these ration cards. There were also some um, bank transfers that were put in place. The problem was that the amounts that are being transferred are so small that no one can really live off of it. So I think what's going to be needed is to sort of make sure that some of these safety nets are put in place, that they are functioning well. My expectation also is that as we go along, Uh, we are going to see targeted lockdowns in areas which have very sharp increase of COVID cases. And so those sharp increases, if they can also be paired with some of the uh, higher intensity transfers, that would be a very good idea. The second challenge we find that people are facing is the transportation challenge, because it's very hard for them to get to work and very hard to get to work in a safe manner where you can maintain some social distancing. So to create better transportation structures, better enforcement of social distancing, again, this is a difficult thing, but this is going to be required as people sort of start moving back to work. And finally, I actually heard of some fairly interesting programs that government of India was thinking about, uh, which is the whole business of sort of matching blue-collar workers and gray-collar workers and employers. Because of our old systems of sort of, you know, just go with a truck and uh, recruit 10 laborers is not going to work anymore. So we are going to have to figure out how to do uh, sort of matching of employers with workers in some safe manner. So first of all, smart containment, right? I think it's becoming increasingly evident that many countries partly because the population may not just have the stamina, partly because there's a serious problem with people who are poor need to work. They need to be in the labor market. 
and partly because governments themselves feel they can't go the full distance, uh, there's increasing thinking about whether we can lock down specific areas where the infection is surging. One of the defining features of SARS-CoV-1 was this kind of spatial heterogeneity. So some areas of Hong Kong got hit, others did not. And interestingly, in the places we're working, we're finding the same patterns. So even within the same city, you could have one neighborhood where the infection rate surged through the roof, and the next neighborhood, two streets over, almost nobody is infected. So we have been thinking quite hard whether you know these kinds of Chile adapted the strategy of dynamic quarantines. So what we want to think about is can you keep trade integrated, which means can you have open trade between different places, but at the same time disintegrate the virus? And is there a way to do that by locking down specific areas where the infection is surging at one point? People are starting to think about it, uh, but there is a big issue of what kind of data and how you would get that data to make something like this work. And that's where we are right now. Can you tell me a bit more about those data challenges? So, I, you know, I think the first step in all of this is the data. But even something as simple as how many infected people are there, it's impossible to tell from the data, right? Uh, and it's because we don't know who's being tested. Uh, we don't know how they compare to a representative sample. We have very little data on hospitalization stays. We have very little data on age-specific mortality from different states in India. And for me, one big part of this is being open about what's going on and making sure that you're using the data to make your considered judgments. And I think that is something that we are still learning how to do well. I think once these data become available in a regular fashion, there is an enormous amount of expertise that can be brought to the questions of what to do at every stage. Till then, unfortunately, everybody's kind of a little bit in the dark because even the epi models that you see, you know, most of them are not using data from India, say, to calibrate what's happened. One big part about how to plan for the future is to actively find out what's happening to people so we can address those concerns once we move into different phases. Sonal, Jishnu, do, do either of you have any final thoughts? If you think about COVID-19 as this massive blank canvas that we started off with, I think the scientists and the doctors and the infectious diseases people have brilliantly filled up a lot of that canvas on their part. What I find surprising is we haven't filled up that canvas on the social policy part, right? And what I don't understand is why would you not have exactly that same rigor when you think about social policy as you do about medicine or as about or with clinical policy, because after all, all of them are dealing in the same way with our most precious commodity, which is our lives. Well, thank you both. We're now going to take a deeper dive into one element of the social policy response to COVID-19, food security. In this segment, I'm delighted to be joined by Bascavira, Professor of Political Economy and Head of the Geography Department at Cambridge, and Professor Nitya Rao, who works on gender and development at the University of East Anglia. Nitya, you're a member of the UN's high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition, and I know you've just launched a report on understanding food security. How should we think about food security in India right now? Food security 
normally has been understood as sort of availability, access, uh, utilization, and short-term stability. I think looking at this definition actually and the conceptual thinking around it, we have added two more elements in the report that has been just launched, which include people's agency and also a longer-term sustainability dimension. So it's not just short-term food security or stability, but it's also longer term. With that kind of framing in mind, so even prior to the COVID uh, pandemic, that for the poorest 30%, the consumption of all food groups is less than what they call as the required dietary uh, intake. Only 6% of under five children actually have what they call as minimum adequate diet or minimum dietary diversity. If you look at other nutrition um, indicators like anemia, it is very widespread across all age groups. So what happens with the COVID pandemic if you look at all these six dimensions? In terms of availability of cereals of public distribution in India, thank God, with a very good reach, it was at least able to ensure basic food grains. And uh, the government of India increased an extra five kilos of basic cereals extra to every household free of cost, and also one kilo of lentils or pulses. Again, when you look at a family household of five, maybe the cereals was enough, but the one kilo of pulses doesn't go very far in terms of protein intake. And uh, definitely with the breakdown of supply chains and so on, the micronutrients completely declined uh, in the diet. I went this morning to buy fruits and vegetables for my household here in Chennai. And actually over the last three months, my food basket, what I could buy, I had to spend a third more in order to get the same quantity for a week. So that takes me to the second dimension in terms of access. And using Amartya Sen's work on entitlements, access is not just a physical access to food, but it's also economic access and social access. Economic access I spoke about with cash incomes declining. A lot of people have been in the city even are out of work without incomes except those in salary jobs. So if they don't work, they don't earn. And that means the economic access or the ability to purchase food, purchasing power has gone down. There is inequality in terms of access to jobs and in terms of access to cash and in terms of social access to many of these uh, uh, social protection uh, measures. Uh, the third element is really utilization. And by utilization, we mean the absorption of food, uh, which depends on also the enabling environment in terms of you know, clean drinking water, in terms of sanitation, in terms of general good health. And what we find now, and this has really emerged as an urban problem, also a rural problem, but in urban slums or in rural areas where we work with Tigris, some of the remote tribal areas where they don't have proper drinking water, they, uh, or in urban slums, the majority of slum dwellers are actually purchasing drinking water because the quality of drinking water is very poor. So this again is a drain on cash. And at this moment, you know, it's a real hard choice. Do I purchase water or do I purchase food? Quickly, I'll talk about the last three dimensions, uh, uh, sustainability and stability. And I think stability is a more short term and sustainability is longer term. Uh, are we able to sustain our food systems? So we reduce reliance on long supply chains, for instance. You know, how much is local self-reliance? It links to ideas of food sovereignty. Do we know how food intake has been impacted by the pandemic? Quick surveys done by networks of NGOs in India have actually shown a decline in food consumption by almost 50% in rural India. So this is not so much in the news. And I think it's very relevant to our discussion on food and nutrition security that uh, consumption of food has declined by over 50%. 
Richie, that seems like a staggering number, 50% decline. Now, how, how, how can we understand that? I mean, that's, that's, you know, this is in a context where many people were not receiving enough food or nutritious food in the first place. I think it's really important to try and set this in the perspective of the structural transformation that the Indian economy has been going through over the last 25, 30 years. The metabolism of flows between rural and urban, I think, is really important. Increasingly, rural residents are unable to sustain livelihoods solely by dependence on land-based activities. A majority of them are forced off the land and look for often quite precarious forms of work in urban settlements. And that's resulted in an informalization of work and employment uh, and migration in search of short-term opportunities, typically migration away from the rural hinterlands towards large urban settlements. Work is not often available locally, so that often means that people are migrating several hundred kilometers to places where opportunities might be perceived to be greater. And the impact of lockdown, especially one which was imposed with such short notice, is that people in those forms of fairly precarious, often daily wage-based employment, immediately lose access to work. That results in an immediate cash crisis which converts into a crisis of consumption, both for themselves in their urban uh, settlements, but also because of the remittance-based economy for their rural families who are at that time dependent on that cash income in order to actually sustain their consumption. And this is taking place at a time when agricultural production is low. This is, this is the lean season. The associated disruption to the flows of agricultural commodities to local communities is also a sort of factor, which means that the supplies are also uh, disrupted. So the supply chain, the rural supply chain was severely impacted by the restrictions on movements in terms of transport. How have seasonal factors contributed to food insecurity during the pandemic? And it's really important to see that India has essentially two different production cycles, one which is based on irrigated agriculture. And that's a very small proportion of the country's food production systems. But this is obviously where the Green Revolution has been most active and where the investment in irrigation infrastructure, both groundwater and surface water, has resulted in productivity increases in these centers of agricultural production. But the rest of the country, which is dependent on annual monsoon rains or the rain-fed agricultural regions, are typically able to have just one production season, which is the post-monsoon winter season. And just as the pandemic struck, we were entering into what is the lean season, the hot, dry season, when local production is relatively low. These rain-fed regions, therefore, are dependent on importing food for their local consumption needs from other places. So the rural supply chain is really important. They also depend on locally available wild foods, uncultivated foods. Uh, one impact of the lockdown was that those local markets also closed down completely. And that meant that some of these safety nets that typically exist were no longer available to sustain the forms of food consumption that people were normally used to. So that's added to an existing disruption because the supply chains weren't working. And what can be done about that? Well, it's partly a result of an invisibility of these forms of food. It's not just about the availability of calorific intake, which is often sustained by things like cereal production, but also about the diversity of food sources to result in a balanced, a healthy diet. So nutrition security is more than just 
calories. And there's an invisibility of that in much of the food security discussion. It's often called hidden hunger. The reliance on these wild sources is often a supplement in local areas. It may not meet your basic calorific needs, but it does provide the diversity in diets. So I think it's about an increasing visibility of those diverse food sources rather than a reliance just on a single form of calorific intake. Uh, and then obviously investing in food production systems that sustain and enhance those, those forms of knowledge as well as those forms of access. Would you say this is a national or a series of localised crises? And I think within a federal system in a country that's as large as India, 1.3 billion people, it's, it has manifestations of localism within a context of national crisis. But there's a question about whose responsibility is it to attend to the lives of precarious people? And the precarity comes both in terms of people's lives and livelihoods, as well as their health. Now, you can see this playing out locally. There is evidence that some local governments and some state governments have been better prepared and better able to respond. And that's partly a reflection of institutional structures, but also an investment. For example, the southern state of Kerala has invested in its public health infrastructure for over 50 years. So this isn't a short-term fix. Likewise, I think if we're thinking about the employment structures, which have really been critical and brought to light here, what the Green Revolution and what the agrarian transition promised was the possibility for surplus labor from the rural areas to be absorbed into the modern industrial and manufacturing sectors. Now, again, the evidence of 50 years of Indian post-green revolution development is that the rural non-farm economy really didn't emerge as a place to absorb surplus labor. So what people were forced into were the patterns of migration that we saw into the big urban settlements, which meant that they were often working in very precarious conditions, very far from places which they see as safe and secure places, places which they call home. When the crisis struck, they went back to security, they went back home. This was the crisis of reverse migration. So if we're looking to the future, it's about creating opportunities for work closer to where people are, where people see their homes, rather than these long-term and distant migrant uh, patterns that, that have characterized uh, these economic pathways over the last 20 years. Thank you both. Baskar, you've just mentioned the role of India's public health infrastructure in responding to the crisis. In the final segment of this episode, we'll be exploring the impact of the pandemic on India's healthcare provision. And with that, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Finn McCain, Assistant Professor in Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and also Dr. Manakshi Galkam, a Research Fellow in health systems and health policy, also at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Manakshi, what's the health situation like uh, regarding COVID-19 in India right now? So, 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 you know, so the death rate has been around between 3 and 4%. I mean, in India, it's, it's pretty okay so far, touch wood, partly because of our demographics. We have a younger population. And partly also because uh, I think the, the virus has been rather concentrated in the big cities where infrastructure is so much better. We have uh, both the best of the public sector and the private sector in the big cities. So I think it's been possible to manage. Of course, there have been some, some tragedies, but on the whole, it's been pretty well taken care of. And the public sector has led from the front. To what extent has the provision of non-COVID care been disrupted? Uh, you know, in India, about 
70% of healthcare is utilized in the private sector. The small and medium-sized private sector had shut down because of the lockdown and also because of fears of infection. So the closing down of the small and medium private sector has, it must have impacted routine services. Immunization, uh, it has been disrupted, uh, the immunization program, because a lot of those health workers who were engaged in immunization, they're now providing uh, COVID screening and surveillance. For non-COVID care, it's uh, been quite a big problem. Patients with dialysis have been turned away and patients seeking care for other conditions. Some hospitals have turned them away. Private hospitals especially have turned them away or they have been really careful about going through a very careful procedure in which they screen them for COVID first. They test them for COVID and then they take them in as other kinds of inpatients. And in fact, there was some controversy about this, uh, whether the private sector should be testing any patient who comes for, for non-COVID problems. The availability of tests is still quite limited. And so the uh, there has to be a very careful uh, decision made around who needs to be tested and who, do, who shouldn't be tested. What's the situation like in rural areas? Health services have been affected. Uh, people do not have a, have, a, have a clear pathway of health seeking, both for COVID and non-COVID conditions. The capacity of the formal health sector is going to be quite limited in rural areas in the coming months. I think it's really important for the local health departments to be prepared and to make sure that they are involving all providers and also the informal sector. We do need to get all hands on deck to manage this crisis. It's really important that all those health providers are well-informed and well-supported during this time. And I also hope that this leads to um, a greater awareness of the need for primary health care. Millions of migrant workers moving back to their villages. What will be the implications for the health system in rural areas, which is already quite inadequate? inadequate both in terms of facilities, primary facilities, especially diagnostic facilities, human resources, trained human resources. If, if say somebody experiences COVID symptoms in a village, who does he turn to? Mostly people in rural areas, in villages, turn to their neighborhood practitioners who are informal. Um, in the present situation where the health system, the public sector is disrupted, because they've got to mobilize all of their existing resources to manage COVID. It's, it's going to be really difficult for them. So far, I haven't seen enough attention being given to the primary health system in rural areas. And that's perhaps because we haven't seen uh, an outbreak as yet in rural areas, but it could happen. And it's, again, it's also a function of testing. So, if the testing is not expanded, if it's not broadened enough, we may never get to see it. If you needed a test in an urban area, where would you go? You could go to a government hospital or get that done. If you have mild symptoms, you should just stay at home. For quarantining, they've also set up other facilities, other uh, uh, bigger facilities like stadiums, where people who are not able to quarantine and isolate themselves at home, they can go and avail those facilities.
you could also go to a private hospital so you can approach the private sector you could call a private uh, laboratory and they would send someone home to test you the government has identified some private hospitals as designated covid care hospitals um, at the level of uh, uh, you know advanced care which would have ventilators which would have an icu then there are uh, also those which can just uh, sort of manage at a secondary level i mean if you get your test done in a private laboratory or in a private hospital the charges for those have now been capped there were many instances of the private hospitals really fleecing patients um and there was just no limit to the amount of money that was being charged for ppes for um for icu care so so the government uh, has come has has uh, come up with some pricing strategy which i hope that hospitals are following has there been anything that has surprised or concerned you or that you think merits further study and antibiotic resistance was a big problem even before covid happened in india but now it's going to increase because antibiotics are being used presumptively um uh, both at the primary level and in hospitals and uh, you know even in uh, at the primary level in the outpatient setting i'm hearing from doctors that they are routinely giving antibiotics to patients who come even with uh, you know moderate symptoms of covid because they want to make sure that uh, there is no risk of a secondary co-infection so that that needs to be addressed And, and turning to you, Finn, tuberculosis is a major cause of death in India, and one of the areas of treatment which has been had the potential to be disrupted by the pandemic. What's the situation like in India at the moment regarding TB? What we are interested in is the impact of COVID on TB, and we've seen a lot of work about the impact of COVID on different things like uh, vaccinations and cancer treatments and so on. And in a lot of places, places like India, um, with a really high TB burden. it's one of the highest causes of death in the in the whole country the potential disruption for tb is has really major consequences tb treatment is really long so you can even for drug sensitive tb you've been treated for 6 months so if that's interrupted then that has uh, really negative consequences for your treatment outcomes uh, what we are interested in for tb in particular is thinking about the fact that when you have these um lockdowns as we've been seeing everywhere because tb is a respiratory disease and uh, some of the things you see where you have reduced social contacts will also have an effect uh, on reducing transmission of mycobacterium tuberculosis um, and so we were really interested in this kind of this trade off between uh, reduction in transmission but then potentially a uh, major reduction in diagnosis and treatment of tb so we model a, a bunch of different scenarios uh, with tb what we're concerned about is that it's not going to just have an effect now so tb because it's an infectious disease every case that you are able to diagnose and treat will then not be able to go on and infect other people what we looked at was over a sort of a 5 year time period and we saw um quite a high peak initially in an increase in tb incidence and a, uh, an increase in tb deaths and then in the longer term that's still there's still a long tail of additional tb incident uh, cases and tb deaths compared to what we would expect i think from our model and then there has been some other work as well in india also doing similar modeling um at imperial college and we identified that there are likely to be as many as 100,000 just over 100,000 additional tb deaths 
in India over the next five years because of this, partly because of the lockdowns and partly um, because of the impact on TV health service delivery. This is potentially an underestimate because we looked at a sort of six-month disruption and it looks like we were doing this back in April and it looks like things are uh, just getting worse at the moment. So disruption could be a lot longer and a lot more severe. We've seen really major decreases in um, things like TV notifications in India. And we're still, essentially, you know, we're, this is very much happening live. We're still trying to find out what that means. Broadly, are likely to be very major reductions in diagnosis, which we can see through the um, reduced notifications. And we think that means probably up to 80% reduction in notifications. We think that means a large number of people are potentially not being diagnosed. We don't know in the Indian context the effect that this has had on treatment, so if people have had interrupted treatment. Um, but it's very likely to have had that effect because when in, a, in a lot of contexts you have directly observed therapy short course. So you go in a clinic, you're supported in your treatment. We know that this does help to improve treatment outcomes. So with people not able to go into the clinic as much, it's likely that they'll have uh, much less support. And if they don't take the treatment, then the chances of them having unfavorable outcomes are much higher. So it's a major outcomes with people dying or um, relapsing, but also further down the line, um, reinfection. How about drug resistance? So yeah, it's a, a potentially major issue. There's implications for transmission of drug-resistant TB, and there's also implications for acquisition of further drug resistance. Are there things we can be doing now? During the pandemic, there are, you know, you can be looking at using digital adherence technology to try and ensure that patients are still um, taking their treatment, but also making sure the TB services are an essential service that is not dropped while services are locked down. But then after the pandemic, there are other things we need to think about. So potentially during this time, TB transmission has been kept within the household, so it's going to be really important to go and do contact tracing and look at their household contacts. There are different, very different things you'll be wanting to think about sort of during the pandemic and after, hopefully when things have been restored to some sort of normal. But for TB, we're looking, you know, this is going to be over the next five years and more. We need to be thinking in, in terms of those timescales and for the impact that this could have and the, the real impact it could have on the gains that we've made in TB recently, which have been new and hard fought, but could be completely wiped out by this. Thank you to everyone who's participated in today's episode. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss cities in the context of COVID-19. CSAP Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This episode of our series on science, policy and pandemics has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases, Tigris and the Cambridge Immunology Network. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rob Doubleday and was produced by me, Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Dr. Sukriti Chawan, Professor Sonal Desai, Professor Jishnu Das, Professor Bhaskar Vera, Professor Nidia Rao, Dr. Finn McQuaid, and Dr. Minashki Gautam. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have feedback about this episode or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ec.uk. Thanks for listening.